Our call to worship this morning comes from the letter to the church at Galatia and the third chapter. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Our opening hymn of worship this morning is a good golden oldie that I used to sing in school assemblies way back in the 1970s. It's a good sing, but it also has an important theme that all the world can sing praises to God. So if you're able, you're invited to stand as we sing together. The words are on the screen and also number 54 in the red hymn books. would have been well impressed. Wouldn't have called us all back for him practice at playtime. We're going to come now to God in prayer. And after I have led us in prayer, we join together in the Lord's Prayer, which you are invited to say in your own first language and whichever version is familiar. But if you want some words to follow, there will be some on the screen. So let's come to God together in prayer. Let us pray. Loving God, we come now in the stillness of this place to offer you our praise and thanksgiving. While we slept, your work of creation carried on quietly. The moon and stars dimmed from view as the sunrise signaled the dawn of a new day. Flowers opened their petals and turned towards the light. Birds sang their praises in chorus. Life stirred 
and we, in our own turn, awoke. We marvel at the diversity of all that you have made. So many species of animals and birds and sea creatures. So many varieties of plants and trees. Rivers and oceans. Mountains and caves. Rich, dark earth and parched, golden deserts. Frozen ice flows and sticky tropical forests. And within all of that, you made us. Each one just as you wanted us to be. Each unique. Each essential. All cherished. And all loved. So... Reminding ourselves of that marvellous mystery, we cannot but respond in praise. And we cannot do other than pray for the continued inbreaking of your kingdom here in this place and throughout the earth as we join in the words of Jesus saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, and we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Is there anybody here this morning who likes strawberries? Quite a lot of people. Oh, my hands went up really quickly. Well, I have some strawberries that can be shared. And I would like two people to come and enjoy the strawberries. So who would like to come and enjoy some strawberries? Which two people? Suddenly all the hands stay down because nobody wants to be the rude one. Well, we can probably share them a bit wider than that once we've had a couple each. So who would like to come out and help me this morning? Right, thank you. Amelia and Freya. Lovely. Right, so you two can each have some strawberries. I'd like to stand one at each end of the table. One at that end and one at that end. Because there's some rules for this strawberry eating. You kind of guessed that, didn't you? You have to eat them with a spoon. Is that okay? Yeah, okay. And you have to hold the spoon properly. So you hold it at the end away from the bowl. Yeah? You don't hold it right up by the bowl. We hold it at the far end. Is that all right? Because I am my father's daughter, after all, and table, matters, table manners matter. And you have to use my special spoons. So would you like to um, help yourself to a strawberry? Can you do it? Can you help yourself to a strawberry? You're doing well there, Freya. I'm quite impressed. (laughs) Well done, you've got one. Can you eat it? (laughs) Yes, it worked. Okay, can you get one, Amelia? Let me put one on for you. I'll I'll help you out by putting one on yours. Can you eat your strawberry? No. So how are you going to manage to get to eat any strawberries? Can you think how it might be possible to eat strawberries whoops with those spoons I'll pick that one up I'll have that one that's gone on the floor I'll get you a clean one so let's pop one back on you how can you possibly perhaps somebody in the congregation can give you an idea how might we be able to eat these strawberries with these spoons oh Andrew's got his hand up Andrew you think they're going to flip it in the air we'll have them all on the floor at that moment that would be one possibility thank you Andrew Katrina Feed them to each other. Can you do that? Um, Freya, can you feed one to Amelia? Can you manage to get that one? Oops, a daisy. Oops. They're all going to get on the floor. There we go. I think you might have to actually put the spoon. There we go. when I was about six at primary school, a different headmaster from the one that made us sing that song. So I'll just move these out of the way, otherwise they might spike somebody. And he told the story of a man who dreamt that he went on two visits. And the first visit, he went to hell. And there was this beautiful banqueting table. And there were people at this banqueting table And they had spoons like this, this long. And they were all miserable because they were trying to feed... I could nearly do it. They were trying to feed themselves, but of course they couldn't, so their tummies were rumbling. And they were really, really sad. And then, in his dream, he was taken out of hell and he went into heaven. And, you know, in heaven there was exactly the same table with exactly the same food 
and exactly the same spoons. But everybody was happy and everybody was enjoying the banquet because they were serving each other, they were helping each other. And that's really what that story is about, isn't it? It's not about what's going on in our world, it's what we, how we approach it. It's not about seeing something as a difficulty that's too impossible. It's about trying to work together to find a way to enjoy the good things. And one of the songs we sing quite often in this church, and we're going to sing it in a minute, it's one of my favourites, and it kind of talks about that. It says, brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. You see, sometimes in church, we're so hung up on this idea that it's more blessed to give than to receive, more important to be the one serving, that we never let anybody serve us. And so we all lose out. We're all trying to feed ourselves with these impossibly long spoons. But actually, if I let you do things for me, and you let me do things for you, we can all have a much happier time and be much closer to the kind of heaven that we imagine. And I think that's what church is about. It's give and take. We all help each other, we all support each other, and then we can experience a much more wonderful life together. So let's sing this song together before the children leave us to go out to their own explorations.
The first reading is from Colossians chapter 3. You were raised from death with Christ, so aim at what is in heaven, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Think only about the things in heaven, not the things on earth. Your old sinful self has died, and your new life is kept with Christ in God. Christ is your life. When he comes again, you will share in his glory. In the new life, there is no difference between Greeks and Jews. There is no difference between those who are circumcised and those who are not circumcised, or people that are foreigners or Scythians. There is no difference between slaves and free people, but Christ is in all believers, and Christ is all that is important. God has chosen you and made you his holy people. He loves you. So always do these things. Show mercy to others. Be kind, humble, gentle and patient. Do not be angry with each other, but forgive each other. If someone does wrong to you, then forgive him. Forgive each other because the Lord forgave you. Do all these things, but most important, love each other. Love is what holds you all together in perfect unity. Slaves, obey your masters in all things. Do not obey just when they are watching you to gain their favour, but serve them honestly, because you respect the Lord. In all the work you are doing, work the best you can. Work as if you are working for the Lord, not for men. Remember that you will receive your reward from the Lord, which he promised to his people. You are serving the Lord Christ. The next reading is Philemon, a slave becomes a Christian. From Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and from Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and worker with us, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, a worker with us, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember you in my prayers, and I always thank my God for you. I hear about the love you have for all God's holy people, and the faith you have in Lord Jesus. I pray that the faith you share will make you understand every blessing that we have in Christ. My brother, you have shown love to God's people. You have made them feel happy. This has given me great joy and comfort. There is something that you should do. And because of your love in Christ, I feel free to order you to do it. But because I love you, I am asking you instead. I, Paul, am an old man now, and a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I am asking you a favour for my son, Onesimus. He became my son while I was in prison. In the past, he was useless to you, 
but now he has become useful for both you and me. I am sending him back to you, and with him I am sending my own heart. I wanted to keep him with me to help me while I am in prison for the good news. By helping me, he will be serving you. But I did not want to do anything without asking you first. Then any favour you do for me will be because you want me to do it, and not because I forced you to do it. Onesimus was separated from you for a short time. Maybe that happened so that he could come back to you forever. Not to be a slave, but better than a slave, to be a loved brother. I love him very much, but you will love him even more. You will love him as a man and as a brother in the Lord. If you think of me as your friend, then accept Onesimus back. Welcome him as you have welcomed me. If Onesimus has done anything wrong to you, charge that to me. If he owes you anything, charge that to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay back anything Onesimus owes you, and I will say nothing about what you owe me for your own life. So, my brother, I ask that you do this for me in the Lord. Comfort my heart in Christ. I write this letter knowing that you will do what I ask and even more. Also, please prepare a room for me to stay in. I hope that God will answer your prayers and I will be able to come to you. Epiphanes is a prisoner with me for Christ Jesus. He sends his greetings to you. And also Mark, Aristocrus, Damas and Luke send greetings. They are workers together with me. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Towards the back of the Bible, we find a number of very short books. Each of them is actually a letter, and none of them is more than a page long, in some cases a lot less. So why did somebody decide to include these in the Bible? When they were looking at which books to include and exclude, why these and not some of the others? If you were to look at some of the Eastern Bibles, you'd actually find that some of these didn't make it into the versions of the Bible that they have. But in our Western Bibles, we have these stories. And what is the point of 21st century followers of Jesus reading and reflecting on them? Over the next couple of months, in a slightly disjointed way, we're going to be looking at 
the letter of Paul to Philemon. Said it right, um, Bethany. So many people told me down the years it's Philemon. It's not because it's a, from the Greek word phileo, so it's got to be a phil. Uh, the second and third letters attributed to John and the letter of Jude. But hopefully as we do that, we'll find some ideas to make us think a little bit about what it means to be believers in and followers of Jesus. Very often when we hear a sermon on, on the letter to Philemon, and that's pretty rare in itself, it'll be done in splendid isolation and focuses totally on Paul's attempt to reconcile the slave owner with the runaway slave, which I would say is Onesimus, but I think Onesimus sounds better, so we'll go with that if you like. This emphasis to restore broken relationships is a really important emphasis, but it's not the only way we can look at this short letter. As I was reading the commentaries, I was really struck by the fact that this letter was almost certainly hand-delivered by Onesimus and others alongside the general epistle to the church at Colossae, from which we also heard. And although it is clearly addressed to Philemon, with mention of Apphia, who some people think may have been his wife, certainly it's a female name, and Archippus, possibly his son, the majority of the language in the letter is in the plural, suggesting it was intended to be read in public, within the context of the local congregation, who, by implication, had the authority to hold Philemon to account for whatever he decided to do after he'd read the letter or heard the letter. Well, I'm not going to get into word games, though you can do all sorts of fancy word games with these names. A useful slave, Onesimus means useful. A loving master, Philemon, from Philo, to love. A protective woman, that's what Apphia means. And even a master of horses, which is what Archippus means. We're not going to do that. Rather, we're going to try and hear the message in the light of some of the aspects of the theology Paul espouses in his general epistle to the church at Colossae and reflect on the tensions he may have been trying to respond to. In two of Paul's letters, the one to the church at Galatia and the one to the church at Colossae, each time with allusions to baptism as being clothed with Christ, he expresses something which is as radical now as it was way back then. And we've heard both of them today. In Galatians, the well-loved and oft-quoted statement, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ. That's really familiar. Perhaps less familiar are the words from Colossians 3. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and is in all. The abolition of humanly defined categories is really radical. There are no racial or national divisions, no status divisions, no gender divisions. In Christ, these categories are meaningless. There is no Scottish or English or Welsh or Lithuanian. There is no straight or gay or anywhere else on the uh, sexuality spectrum. There is no employee or employer or whatever category our damaged, disordered, dualistic world might like to imagine. 
But it goes beyond a kind of dualism, that in, out, up, down, left, right, black, white split. I think the ranges and spectra were their inherent potential to divide that which in Christ finds perfect union are also now rendered meaningless. That is Paul's ideal. And it's wonderful as a theological concept, but it sure ain't the world in which Paul lived, and it's not the world we live in either. This imagined world, this ideal world, in which who or what you are is no longer an issue to be solved, that you're not going to be a minority to be scapegoated, nor are you an in-group to be aspired to. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But in our world, people often define themselves over against another people group by who they're not or what they're not. And in that context, what Paul says can feel like an impossible dream. So this is a situation that faced Paul when he had a runaway slave who'd come to faith in Christ and he really ought to send him back. But he knew that if he sent him back, he would certainly risk being punished and could even be put to death. So for all his idealised talk about there being no slaves and no free... The reality that he doesn't challenge is that there are slaves and that Christian believers continued to own them. I think the dilemma that Paul faces is one that all Christians face. How do we handle that dislocation between what we profess on a Sunday and what we pray for on a Sunday and what we face on a Monday morning? or a Tuesday afternoon, or whatever it is. How do we live out our theology in a world that has other values? And it's very simplest. It could be seen as an inevitable consequence of this now and not yet nature of the rule of Christ. That what began to be glimpsed 2,000 years ago is still far from complete that the good we dream of, the justice we long for, the peace we imagine, is still somewhere off in an as yet unattainable future. And in its simplest, we may say, well, this fulfilment will come only at the eschaton. And whilst I believe that's true, it can also be a very lazy response, can't it? Saying, well, we're just not going to worry about it. God will sort it out eventually. At the end of time, God will make everything right. Week by week, we pray the words, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's good that we do so. But every week, we risk them becoming mere rote unless we try to live them out in what we do. So here is Paul with a real pressing pastoral matter. Anesimus, a somewhat ironically named useful slave, has become very dear to him. And he's trying to find a way that he could send him back to Philemon, the loved or loving brother in Christ, 
that would allow reconciliation between the two to take place. But what he doesn't do is to challenge the continued ownership of slaves by those who profess to follow Jesus. In his ideal world, there'll be no slaves and no free men, but in the here and now, there are. And he seems to have nothing to say about this inconsistency. In fact, if you remember carefully to what Beth read for us, he tells slaves to obey their masters as Christ. Elsewhere, he tells um, masters not to oppress their slaves. But he doesn't seem to challenge the existence of slaves in his own time. I want to suggest that there are a number of possible responses by Christians to everyday experiences that don't fit with our own eschatological vision, in which divisive or exclusive distinctions have no place. Paul does seem to accept the status quo. He doesn't question the ethics of slave ownership. And it's only a very obscure reference in the letter that suggests he might want Anesimus to be freed. Perhaps he feels there is no point challenging the establishment. It's just the way it is, and all he can do is speak to a specific situation of which he is aware. And maybe that's a valid choice. Maybe there are issues that we think it's just too big. I wonder who knows the parable of the starfish. At low tide, a man was walking along the beach when he saw a small child picking up starfish who was stranded on the sand as the waves had receded. And as the child picked up each one, they threw it back into the sea. The man looked and saw the beach littered with creatures that would soon be dead unless somebody threw them back into the sea. Turning to the child, he said, You're wasting your time. You can't make any difference. This is just the way it is. Starfish get stranded and they die. The child looked at the man, looked at the starfish, picked another one up, threw it as far out to sea as possible. Made a difference for that one, she said. Is this what Paul does here? He can't change the whole thing, but he can make a difference for one person. Is that something that we could perhaps do? Or do we find ourselves frustrated at the fact that Paul says one thing and doesn't seem to then follow it through? Do we think he should be more radical? Should he be like the ancient prophets who risked their lives to denounce injustice? to speak as for God in a world that had gone astray, to challenge the structures that perpetuated the status quo, to announce a new vision and a new world order, to say, if you carry on like this, this is what's going to happen and God ain't happy about it. The Christian church in the West sometimes, I think, is rather smug in pointing out how it was believers in Jesus who challenged the injustice of slavery, especially the transatlantic transport of people to work on plantations owned by wealthy white Christian people. A few years ago, the Baptist Union of Great Britain issued an apology for the part Baptists in the past had played, either acting or failing to act to address that. 
But it's just one issue among many. There are many issues about which the church cannot smugly say we were at the forefront of addressing that injustice. There are times when to speak out against the status quo, to say, this cannot be. But I think the church and its people, and I count myself very much among this, are often a bit too timid or a bit too comfortable because, frankly, it works quite nicely for us or too complicit in it all to name and challenge whatever is inherently unjust. And when we pause, then perhaps we wind up feeling very guilty. So whilst I think we can sometimes be a bit lazy or a bit timid about it, we also have to recall that prophets were in a minority. Not everybody was called to that role. Not everybody went around stark naked announcing or denouncing or making fires of cattle poo to, to eat on or whatever it was. For many, for most, the task is to hear and to respond. But if the task is to hear and respond, then we have to do that too. So there's the one at a time, and there's the very radical. But that leads us to another trap, doesn't it? We have a binary alternative here. You can do it one at a time, or it's kind of one or everything. I think there are other ways to work for the kingdom that are subtle, maybe less obvious, and who knows, perhaps even more effective. There's the path of subversion. A path that appeals to me because I'm basically a rule follower. I find it very difficult if somebody asks me to be disobedient. How on earth I ended up in a dissenting tradition of Christianity is a mystery, but there you go. Subversion is a decision to work within the system according to the rules in ways that demonstrate its internal inconsistencies and limitations. This is exemplified when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. I'm going to borrow Neil for this. I've probably done it before, but never mind. In their culture, the honor code was such that you would strike the person on the right cheek with your right hand. So if Neil now decides to turn the other cheek towards me, I have a problem. I've either got to change to my left hand, which would be very bad in those days, or I have to strike him with the palm of my hand, which would be unacceptable. He undermines the rules... He subverts the rules whilst 100% obeying them. Or the person who demands your outer garment. In an age when people basically wore two garments, a tunic and a cloak, so you demand the cloak and you say, well, actually, folks, take my, my robe as well. And you stand there, stalkers. It's within the rules, but it makes them look awfully stupid for demanding something of you. Or that one we talk about so often, walking the extra mile. A Roman citizen could demand of anybody that they picked up their pack and carried it a mile. And then they would put it down. Well, it's slightly embarrassing if you're this Roman and this person has carried your pack for a mile and it's fine, don't worry, I'll do it for another mile because suddenly that's not quite how the rules are meant to work. You look awfully stupid. Working within the rules to the letter and beyond 
can be a powerful means of exposing injustice and disempowering power. And then there's another option, the transformative option. And this is the one I think that Christians kind of like the most. Because we get metaphors of being salt and light. That which savours, preserves, transforms and illuminates. Or the image of the widow who kneads uh, her leaven into the flour and it becomes a life-giving bread. Or the tiny little seeds that flourish and become shady plants where birds can nest. This one is kind of, I think, the easiest one for people like me anyway. Because what it says is our very presence in the world does that. Our values lived out day to day can make a difference slowly and quietly. Way, way, way back, I used to work in an office with a group of engineers, and we were very polite engineers, it has to be said, because we were all professionals. But there was a bit of a sweary kind of thing. And I did have a friend who would regularly say, oh my God, oh Jesus Christ. And I didn't like it very much, not because I was kind of hung up that this was horrendously blasphemous, although at the time I think I would have felt it was. But I felt it was disrespectful, and I just said, you know, could you maybe not do that? Because you'd be really upset if every time I got crosses, oh, my Tony, oh, for goodness, Tony's sake. And he got it, and it rubbed off. And he would then, a few years later, he wasn't a Christian, this guy, but we had a new colleague who would, oh, my God, all the time, and Tony said, don't do that. It's not very nice. You wouldn't like it if I said, oh, my Rob, all the time. We can make a difference a little bit, transforming. It's not quite the same as the starfish one, but perhaps it's similar. As I've reflected on this short letter, particularly in the context in which Paul wrote and sent it, I'm struck afresh both by his vision and of the challenge of making it real in a world with very different ideas and power. I'm also struck by the uncomfortable truth that the church has never really discovered its true place as somewhere in which the factors that have potential to divide, separate, exclude or demean should be meaningless. It shouldn't matter in a church if a person is black or white because in Christ, colour is meaningless. It shouldn't matter in a church if a person is straight or gay or bisexual or transgender or intersex because in Christ these things are not important. It shouldn't matter if a person is an elite athlete with disability or an otherwise average person with two left feet because neither of those is inherently more or less valuable. But the fact that it doesn't matter doesn't mean that these things just go away. The body of Christ is a place where every member matters equally, where every person is vital, and where diversity is an essential aspect of a healthy unity. Paul's image of the church as a body is one way of seeing that, but also the eschatological image of the new creation in which there are all tongues, all nations, all tribes represented. And I think that's a shorthand for all people of all kinds. 
The challenge that Paul faced is the challenge that we each face, not just in the abstract, but in very real human interactions. How do we hold together the hope of our faith, the vision of a new creation or a renewed creation, which is probably a better translation, the kingdom of God's shalom, and a reality where we're overwhelmed by the extent and enormity of the issues we face. Just turn on the television and there are so many things in the news, it just can all seem too much. Whether it's one starfish thrown back into the sea, one protest march, one petition signed, one injustice named, one ridiculous rule subverted, or one small work of transformation, Each one of us can bring close to the day when the dream becomes a reality and all people may discover their true identity as children of God. In Christ, there is no east or west. In him, no south or north but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. We stand, if we're able, to sing. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you now as the one who breaks down the barriers between nations, between peoples, between classes, between statuses. We are all too conscious that the world we live in seems only and increasingly to erect barriers, barbed wires to keep out immigrants walls between people in settlements, barbaric punishments for those who don't espouse the right doctrine, 
tax havens available only to the rich, economic policies that burden the poorest, education structures that favor the privileged, employment practices that promote gender wage gaps, surveillance technologies that impinge on privacy, laws that discriminate against orientations, disabilities, the elderly. Our lists seem endless. In a week of media frenzy when the division between so-called Greek and Jew seemed that much more strengthened here in the UK, we turn to you, O God, the abolisher of divisions, and ask you to clothe us all in the love that binds and unites in the perpetual peace of compassion and in the perfected harmony of grace. We pray for institutions set up to gather all nations into a common purpose of justice, of freedom from oppression, of sisterhood and brotherhood. And we think especially this morning of the United Nations with its aim to mitigate against war, its service in production of food, its promotion of education and health, its care of refugees and children. And we ask you to strengthen its leaders with a resolve to further these noble goals despite growing barriers, even barriers within its own structures. We pray, too, for those on campaign trails, and we ask that you help them shift their rhetoric to issues that nurture unity rather than foment strife. We pray for national and local organizations set up to bridge the divide between traditionally fractious groups, fractious ethnicities, fractious identities, and ask you to embolden them to battle further the common and powerful prejudices that continue to hold sway. And we think of our own congregation and the barriers we, knowingly or unknowingly, might put up for others around us. And we ask you to help us receive back those we need to receive, to embrace those we have neglected, and to overcome the prejudices we might secretly or perhaps even openly harbor. We come before you, Lord, in the promise that there is no longer Greek and Jew, slave and free, white and colored, straight and gay, privileged class and working class, G7 and developing nation, educated and uneducated. And thus, may the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which indeed we have been called in one body. Amen.
apologies for the different word order on the screen from the, the sheets. Uh, it's a bit of diversity in unity or unity in diversity or something like that. This is the table to which Jesus invites everyone born. To which you are invited, as is everyone else in this place. This is a table where there is no higher or lower position. So no one may boast and no one need feel insignificant. This is a table where everyone is a sinner and each is a saint in the making. Here all gather to remember the story that unites them. This is the table that anticipates the heavenly banquet where all diversity is celebrated in reconciled diversity and love embraces all. This is the table of the Lord who enters the messiness of our human experience, rescuing, redeeming, subverting and transforming until everything is renewed. This is the table. We are the people. Here and now, hope is reborn. Sharing the peace is a visible symbol of our unity in Christ and yet an act that leaves many Baptists very, very twitchy. Sharing the peace is a symbolic opportunity to be reconciled with those we perhaps find it a little more difficult to love. And sharing the peace is a tangible expression of love given and love received within the grace of God. So in a moment, I'm going to invite us to give each other a sign of peace. Not just simply turning to those next to us, because that's relatively easy. But if we're able to move around, to find perhaps somebody we don't know so well, or a little more unsure about, and to discover afresh the wonder that we are accepted by them. Because in sharing this simple act maybe we will discern afresh the body of Christ in this place. So the peace of Christ be always with you. We offer each other a sign of peace. The Apostle Paul recalled the story like this. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We follow Jesus' example and we give thanks. Thank you, God, for the way that we encounter you in simple, everyday things like flowers and birds and mountains and streams. Thank you, God, for the way we encounter you in each other, in all our diversity and difference. And thank you, God, for the way that in this simple act of bread broken and wine poured, we encounter afresh the mystery of all you do for us in Christ. Amen. So Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he shared it with his friends who were quite a rum crew, quite frankly. Some fishermen and tax gatherers and zealots and people of different opinions. One of them would betray him and one of them would deny him and all of them would run away. But he loved them. And he loves us. So we are invited to take some bread, to eat it, and to remember Christ and the truth of his love for us. And at the end of the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and said, This is the sign of the new covenant, the new relationship, the new promise between God and humanity, between God and creation. When you drink this wine, remember me. We will retain our glasses that we can drink together, a symbol in some sense of that reconciled diversity in which all humanly created boundaries are torn down. The Apostle Paul reminds us that Christ is all and is in all. So let's drink together in faith and thanksgiving. There is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and is in all. Thanks be to God. Amen.
Our Sunday worship ends. Our daily service begins. Our Sunday service concludes. Our life of worship continues. So may we go in peace to love and serve the Lord now and always.